I think it's a, we've got a lot of good thoughts and a lot and a lot of good. I don't know. You don't think so? What like for this one or just, just yeah? Like there's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good content. It might not be all good, great content. You know what? Free, you know what Friedberg said. What he said: moving forward, every business in the world is going to be a content business. Of course, yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. It's like the, now, once we get our brand out there, then it's like the, our tennis racket is going to be more popular than Wilson's or our tennis balls, whatever. J.K.L. I'm not talking about a car. J.K.L. I'm talking about basic things. Is it easier to create a YouTube channel with 50 million followers? Or is it easier to make a good burger, J.K.L.? <laughs> it's easier to make a good burger, you idiot. <laughs> Everyone thought that they weren't going to get a U.S. Open recap from us, but you guys are, and this is it. It's a few days late, but better late than never, right, Drew? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it did take a couple of days to digest what we saw in the final, and just how, what a unique, I mean, just a unique Grand Slam in every single way. I mean, it was, I don't know if it wasn't maybe the most amazing matches, but I can't remember something that feels like the entire paradigm of tennis has shifted a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you said you took a while for your, for you to digest it. I was honestly kind of, I wish we had done this earlier. I know we couldn't uh, logistically with your, your travels and work. Um, Drew's, Drew's in high demand uh, in all aspects of his life. So, you know, it's always tough to, jump on with him but I, I was clear and ready to go right after but you know now that it has sunken in um i think honestly i think it's good we waited because if we had talked right after then we would have just been talking about how amazing carlos is and i think maybe now that we've had the time to step back uh think more about it more broadly season as a whole where it's going i think i think it is good um that we waited. Look, carlos bit. alcaraz has the major now he has the monkey off his back he had to save match points against yannick sinner he almost he had five setters against chillich five setter against tfo and he saved two set points in the final against rude so many roadblocks and what i was thinking was what if he didn't win this you know if he didn't win this and you're coming back next year you've healthy zverev you have djokovic you have rafa Sitsipas, and if he wouldn't have taken this golden opportunity but he did take it you know, and now I think it just shifts his whole feeling. I don't think he has any pressure on him moving forward the next year at all. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't have any pressure on him moving forward. But I would like to think if he had not won this, it would have been disappointing. But I'd like to think he would not be one of those guys like Zverev, like a sissy pass who lose in finals and then are just just flounder now whenever they get deep in majors because they can see it, they can feel it, and the the nerves really get to them. And especially because he's so young. He's 18, 19 years old. When 
Zverev was his first final was the U.S. Open, if I'm not mistaken, but 2020. He was like 23 years old, so you know, five years, four years is is a big difference. Getting your first Grand Slam final when you're 19 versus when you're you're 23. 23 is still still very young, but it's a big difference. Yeah, I don't think we even saw Carlos's best tennis in this tournament, which is kind of wild to think about. But I can just think about his tie breaks. He didn't win a single tie break the entire tournament. He went five sets with Chilich. He had a bunch of easy points, like the set point against center where he had an easy forehand. And then he was mentally wasn't really 100% the whole tournament, you know? So I think it's kind of scary to think what he'll be able to do when he can put it together. And also, I disagree because of how honestly nervy he looked the entire event. I think that it's something that could have kind of weighed on his mind. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's going gonna, it's gonna to weigh on anyone's mind who's at that caliber level. I'm just saying I don't think it would have dragged on like it has for for Zverev. And I, what you're saying is correct about he was not... We saw glimpses of his top highest level against uh, Yannick Sin. They had some unbelievable points. But in that particular match, you're right. He didn't play the pressure points well in the first few sets. Obviously, that changed moving forward. But yeah, not his... It definitely agreed that it wasn't his 100% full-fledged performance at the US Open. And quite frankly, I don't think uh, for how good a season he had, I think his his level still has a, you know, a big way to go. Yeah, I think it helped him actually that he was kind of not playing the best tennis coming into the event. Because everyone was talking about Kyrgios, everyone was talking about Rafa, Medvedev, and he was kind of on a losing streak. And I want to take you back actually to Toronto when he lost the first match to Tommy Paul and he came out with a statement after the match saying, I'm going to be honest, I couldn't handle the pressure. That admission to me showed that he had the kind of the right mindset that moving into the U.S. Open and kept and just kept he just kept building from there, you know? Yeah, he did. He did keep building. I think I, I was the same way. Uh, it, I was I was actually I was very concerned that he was not playing his best tennis in terms of how he would do at the U.S. Open. But I, I like that statement. And I think, you know, Going under the radars, it's ne- never a bad thing. It happened to Rubikina at Wimbledon. It was happening to Pliskova at this event. Really, no one saw her uh, getting uh, to the quarterfinals. I think that was a shock for everyone. So, you know, going under the radar is never, never a bad thing, I will say. And and to yeah. be honest, to be honest, I think this is going to free him up for the rest of the season and even into next year. And I think he's going to be a bigger threat at majors more of a threat than any of the other top guys yeah and you kind of saw that with his comments after the match he said it's pretty clear i have to keep working to win titles and to stay on top right now sure i'm enjoying the trophy in my hands but i want to be on top for many weeks and many more years to come so he's not seeing this as i think maybe casper would have seen it or another player winning their first major usually you see it is reaching the pinnacle and that was was interesting about this final was it was two guys who was, were going to win their first major, kind of similar to Chilich against Nishikori. And that's, I think, maybe why we didn't get the best final, because both people had never experienced that. But he's not looking at it like um, he's reached the pinnacle. He's looking at it like it's a stepping stone on the way to something greater, just, just based on his comments. I mean, he's, he's not taking a long time off. He's not taking a long time to celebrate. You know what he's doing this week? He's playing Davis Cup for Spain. So he just wants to get back out on the court, this guy. Um, I mean, if, and it just... 
if you think about it, that's just a, that's a different mentality. You, I don't think there's many players who would win a grand slam and then come back and say, I just love playing tennis so much. I want to compete for my country. If Alexander Zverev won a grand slam, how many days and weeks later would we see him partying and celebrating that grand slam? I'm going to say over under six weeks. That's where I would set it. Um, <laughs> you have to travel just travel everywhere you know he'd be instagramming with the with the trophy and everything like that i think for carlos i i saw he had the photo shoot in you know times square with the with the trophy i mean yeah he looked happy but it just looked like one of the obligations that he had to do he wasn't very quick to you know post on social media or anything any anything of the sort the the uh, look at me i'm the best his mindset is not at all on winning. he's already moved on from it which is which is which is crazy um but I, I, I'm going to be, I didn't, I didn't see this coming from a year ago. I think a year ago was when he had his breakthrough win against Stefanos at the U.S. Open. And at that time, I was like, wow, this is a huge upset. He looked like a twig. I mean, his transformation of his body is something that's unreal. Um, yeah. uh, I didn't see this coming a year ago. I'll, I'll just say that much. I thought he was going to be maybe the next star, but did not see uh, number one in the world, youngest uh, ever. No, I didn't see that coming. Yes, uh, the transformation of his body, uh, unreal, unnatural, however you want to categorize it, you know, quite something is, that's very hard for tennis players to do because they only have, what is it, at the end of the, the maybe take November, December off, maybe take off two weeks, 10 days in November. So I'm assuming, assuming they have six weeks five, six weeks to dedicate to full-on strength training because they're not doing that during the season. So to be able to put on that much muscle in that short amount of time is the reason we think Carlos was cooked up in a lab in Spain. Yeah, I mean, we were we were there first row for that match against Sitsipas. I mean, Carlos looked like a boy. He looked like he looked younger than 18 last year, I think. He looked like 14, 15 years old, um, which is why that was honestly more, more impressive to me being Sitsipas last year than some of the stuff he's done this year. Casper even Casper even had a quote about Carlos's uh, you know, body, stuff like that, doctor. Casper said after the match, he praised Dr. Contoro, who is Carlos's doctor, and said that he did the right thing to keep Carlos's body fresh for the entirety of the tournament and uh, and Grand Slam. So same doctor that Rafa has actually, um, which is kind of interesting to note. Interesting, I think he might be the only player on tour that travels with a doctor with him. I know people have physios and stuff, but really yeah yeah that's it yeah that is that's interesting i didn't i didn't know he traveled with a doctor i mean i yeah it just a very a very a very big transformation i don't know if we want to talk about the match now was there literally anything that god could have done or casper could have done for himself for him to win this match I don't know. I think it's tough for Casper Ruud because obviously his forehand is massive. And it's kind of like when you're a lefty and you're going into a match, you have the same strategic objective every time, which is try to hit to the other righty's backhand. With Casper, he has such a weak backhand that there's only so much you can do no matter how strong your forehand is. I mean, Casper was hitting inside out forehand returns from outside of the doubles alley. You know, and at that point, you're kind of limited with what you can do when you have no confidence in one stroke, which is Casper's confidence is gradually decreased over the match and his backhand. Um, and it can yeah. be, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it decreased. I think, 
I think he's a great player. I think he doesn't get enough credit for how good he is. I think his backhand is... It's not, obviously. It's a big, major weakness. However, when he runs around that forehand so much, then when he does have to hit a backhand, he's going to be even more nervous. If he rips a few backhands, is feeling good, then he's going to stop thinking about it. And then he'll be able to, you know, just... Use that bread and butter backhand to keep it in the core and wait for the forehand. Just that's literally all he needs to be able to do. He doesn't need it to be a weapon. He doesn't need it to, to, to be a a stroke that he can challenge the opponent off. He d- doesn't need to be any of that. It literally needs to get in the court and a- allow the opponent to not destroy, attack it, destroy the ball and attack it and come in. And I think I think his backhand does that when it goes in. So he just needs to work on. Uh, consistency. So that's kind of my take on his backhand. And the one other thing I will say is the return of serve standing so far back in the court. I just don't think that was good for a a couple of reasons because firstly, it opens up your backhand even more to Carlos because he's able to hit that kick serve to the backhand, the weaker stroke and come in and take a volley. And and that's just then at that point you're toast if you're Casperud. So I think he needed to figure something out on the return. Yeah, I mean the other problem with his backhand is that he can't direct the ball. <clears throat> he can't he can't hit the ball down the line. So, so if he's trying to hit the ball on his backhand down the line and change the pattern of play, he's not able to do that. Often it ends up just in the middle of the court and it's right you know in Carlos's wheelhouse. And the other thing I'll say about thinking and not thinking is actually Kasparu's best backhand is when he's on the run with either doing a passing shot or just someone gets him out wide. Um, and, and so that, that's why I think sometimes it's, it's just the more he thinks about it, the harder it is for him. And, and that's what you saw exactly what happened in the tiebreak in the four set tiebreak after he blew, blew two set points, um, you know, at, at six, five, he blew two set points and he got into the tiebreak. He shanked one, backhand and then missed a bunch of other shots. I think, I think Pam Shriver had a tweet that said Casper's missed five shots by collectively about 150 feet, which is abnormal for a professional tennis player. I don't know how he's going to be able to deal with that. So those are the stretches. He can go through amazing stretches with his huge forehand, but he can, he also has the unfortunate, the, the floor is very low when he gets, when he gets bad, you saw that in that four set tie break, you know? Um, and when you compare that to Carlos, he has, basically no flaws in his game other than mentally. Sometimes he zones out a little bit and starts missing shots, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, if you're Casper, the only you, you're not, there's no weaknesses you're going after. You're just trying to play to your strength, your forehand, because there is no weaknesses in Carlos. I, at least I haven't noticed. Yeah, no, I, I can't, I can't say anything about the weaknesses of Carlos's game. I'll say on, like you were talking more tactically about his backhand, where and when he's hitting it in the court, more technically on the technical side for Casper, it's just his wrists are so tight on the backhand. Um, there's kind of no, there's no, nothing, there's nothing loose about the backhand stroke, and that's what technically doesn't allow him to redirect, redirect the ball. Yeah, and when it comes to the return, Casper's return is not bad. And actually, the only thing that I think is kind of a weakness, I, I said there was no weaknesses, but now this comes to mind, is that. Carlos only won 69% of his first serve points the entire tournament. So it's not like this guy is some giant server, massive server, where you have to stand all the way back. You know, he's, o- he's only winning 70% of his first serve points, which is the, uh, it's the least that a Grand Slam winner has ever ha- has had since, I think, 2003 or 2004. 
So when you're looking at a weaker first serve and something you can maybe step up, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why Casper didn't mix up on 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 the return and keep Carlos guessing a little a little more. You know. I think it's just because he's just so, you know, doesn't have the talent to kind of step up and take the balls early. Because that takes takes a lot of a lot of talent, a lot of timing and precision. When you don't have that, you go all the way back and just kind of throw it in the court, which yeah. is un- unbelievable. You have to say that for someone who's in a grand semifinal, but it's it's kind of the truth. I, I just think for Casper, I think right now he's not as, I guess you could say, devastated with the the loss with his season. Obviously, he's looking back at his season, saying, "I made two Grand Slam." championships he said you know i'm knocking on the door he believes he could be num- he should be number two looking at number one but i think as his career goes on as other players start to you know get better and develop and some of these injured players come back i think that the fourth set or third set set points i think they're going to haunt him slowly and slowly haunt him for a long time because i don't know when he's going to have another chance at something so big you know is it, and, and, yeah is it a hot take that i think he'll win a major I think he'll win the French Open. Um, I don't know. If, I don't think it's a hot take at all, but I do think it's not. I think it's like a 50-50 proposition. If, if you look at just the lack of consistency among next-gen players, and given also that Carlos's rank, or no, sorry, not Carlos, Casper's ranking is going to be top five, top ten, or let's say just top ten for the rest of his career, then. He's going to have good draws initially in the tournaments. And, at, you know, some of these other guys are going to flounder, maybe lose before they play him, maybe lose to him. So I don't think – I think it's very probable that he, he gets a French Open or, or even an even Australian Open or a U.S. Open. Yeah, I think it's possible. You mentioned the strategic scheduling. Once he's in the top five, I don't think he's going to leave the top five. So it's a matter of get, basically getting another favorable draw and making his way – um to the finals but at the same time you're forgetting the fact that he's also someone who can easily lose in the second round or third round right and you're also not factoring in carlos just continuing to get better you know um that's 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 what i think i think a lot of these players can pass him by yannick sinner uh another example i think yannick sinner will be better than him you know and he's i don't think yannick sinner is better than him right now yeah casper is better but um but but yeah Talk, talks talks of scheduling shout out to San Diego for keeping their renewing their ATP 250 and adding a WTA 500 so I think we're excited to get hopefully get out to one of those right Drew uh, the WTA 500 entry list is absurd I'm you definitely... know why you know why it's yeah. absurd because there's a, a thousand is it a 1000 in like Mexico like a week after oh okay That's why. Gotcha. And so it goes it goes uh 500 in San Diego, it goes to 1,000 in like fucking Guadalajara or some shit, and then it goes to Fort Worth for the final. Fort yeah. Worth, Texas. Who, yeah. what, what tennis fans live in Fort Worth, Texas? What uh, up? Andy Roddick, maybe? No. Here's, no. Here, no, no. here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say about the women's final eight thing being in Fort Worth. The fact that the U.S. Open final was going on and I couldn't find a bar that was showing the game because just one screen, just one screen with the, yeah. with the tennis on. It could be in the back of the bar. I don't care, or a restaurant or whatever. And they, no bar in New York City had it on. All Everyone was watching week one NFL. And I, I get it. I get it. People like the NFL here. But the fact 
that I couldn't find the match. That should mean that America should not get to host the finals for the women's event. So whoever's doing the scheduling for that is kind of out of their minds. I know, I know, I know, I know the WTA. Yeah, was, I mean, it's interesting. The WTA yeah. got the WTA got some investment from some private equity company, and they're seemingly taking value away from the WTA, not creating more value for them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. But I, I was surprised that you know the U.S. Open had the best, its best attendance in years. And everyone was saying how hyped the U.S. Open was. But it did, it did seem like once you left the U.S. Open, there wasn't as much discussion about it. And if you saw someone watching tennis at a bar, like I, I remember we were at a bar watching the TFO Alcaraz match. There was maybe three people. It was on every TV that night. That was the Friday night. There were maybe, they, these guys were having insane points. It was the fifth set. And I think it was us, one older couple, and maybe one younger guy who was watching the match. And I was like, this entire bar should be watching right now. It's an American in the semifinal. And it, it just wasn't. I think, I think the attendance numbers at the U.S. Open have to do with a lot of the people that go there are not necessarily interested in the tennis. They're just there to have, you know, a day out, take an 100%, Instagram picture, 100%. Uh, drink a honey deuce, um, and just be like, I've, I've been at the U.S. Open. So a lot of the tennis analysts on Twitter, they're saying, hey, the, you know, the, the attendance at the U.S. Open was the, the greatest we've seen and uh, you know, this many years, this shows tennis is booming. I'm not sure it's necessarily about the tennis. I think it's more about the event. Um, but you know, that's uh, part uh, of it. That's part of it. Maybe some no. people will get into tennis by going to the event. It's possible. Right, right, right. right. I'm, I mean, I don't care if you go to the event, if you're into tennis or not, but I'll, I'll just give some commentary to the New York City crowd and who, who the people are that live here. So obviously people in New York City surrounding areas have realized that tennis is kind of like a, you know, kind of a fancy bougie sport, I guess you could say. A lot of the people that live in New York are kind of the people who want to be in with that kind of like elite activities, elite crowd, I guess you could call it. And kind of that's that's what's driving them to the US Open. They're going they're going because they think it's a cool thing to go. It's like it's like, oh my gosh, like what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I went to the open. Exactly. I went to, exactly. I went to the open. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, and that's fine. Like I'm sure. I'm sure there's things I do just because I want to just go. Right. For the, and, yeah, and like I said, it's possible that some play, someone who maybe was like a former college athlete or something or never was really into tennis, but kind of like sports goes <clears> there and they see it and they're like, wow, this is really cool. And they get into it. That's possible, I guess. But um, it, it was very disappointing that only NFL was on all the bars um, on Sunday. And I don't know about Saturday because I was at home watching the, the women's final. But um, yeah, yeah, that kind of. That kind of sucks. Should we? Should we? Oh, we're not. We're we're doing trivia and games, right? Yeah, trivia. We, okay, it's been a while. We didn't we didn't do a trivia and game segment for you guys last time. I don't know why, but we are gonna be back to doing our trivia and games. Uh, if you're if you're new to the show, this is when we'll I'll ask Drew a question, uh, multiple choice or not. He'll try and answer the trivia question, and then he'll he'll do do the same to me. So you want to go? You want to go first? Yes. So I have one uh, trivia question and then one quote game, which uh, if you're not familiar with the quote game is we read a quote from someone in the tennis world and then the other person tries to guess who that quote is from. So um, here we go, Vid. Very interesting question about, uh, uh, you know, a topic that I think has been on everyone's mind uh, recently. Rest in peace to Queen Elizabeth. Um, 
you know, from the United Kingdom. I will say that uh, as a citizen of the United Kingdom myself, I have been in somewhat of a state of mourning over the past week. So it's been tough for all of us, but uh, in her honor, in her, in her honor, or somewhat maybe not in her honor, I have a um, question regarding Queen Elizabeth that's regarding tennis as well. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, I'm, yep, I'm ready. Here we go. Which member of the big four turned down a meeting with Queen Elizabeth turned down a meeting with Queen Elizabeth in 2010 because he wanted to focus on adequate preparation for his Wimbledon second round match. Who was this? The big four, one of the big four. It's not Andy Murray because he's British. It's not Roger Federer because Roger Federer would eat that shit up. Uh, it says it's going to be either Djokovic or Nadal. Now I'm just trying to think which one you would think I would think it was so you don't double reverse with a twist me. This is so, no, there's no double reverse with a twist here because I just said big four. I mean, they were the four who were invited. So, I mean, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't put a random lower ranked player as, a, as an option because like, there's no way they would even be invited, you know? <laughs> no, but you, no, but you know, you knew when you were going to ask me this question that I would immediately eliminate Federer and Murray. I don't even think Grigor Dimitrov would qualify. I, I don't know if like he'd be like I don't think he'd be qualified to meet the Queen. Hell no, Grigor Dimitrov <laughs> barely qualified to look at the Queen. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll just go with. I feel I feel like Novak Djokovic would try and make it work. I, I I'm gonna say Nadal. You got it, Nadal. Uh, Let's before go. Before his second round match, in uh, he it was about before he played Robin Hase. And I think he beat him in four or five sets. And Nadal ended up winning the tournament that year. But he, he even had some quote that was a little bit like, why are you disrespecting me by asking me like this? You know, I have to say no. He said, like, you know, I have my routines before the match. Why would I even be asked this or something? Kind of a weird comment. Uh, but yeah, that was that was Nadal. So uh, rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth. Um, you know, yeah, that's all I have. That's a good one. This one I have, I guess are we, we're not doing honorable. I'm, we're not doing honorable mentions. No, this is trivia. I have an honorable mention. We can do that at the end. Yeah, this is kind of honorable mention, kind of trivia. Okay, here it is. Here it is. A player, the only player in tennis history, has won a calendar Golden Slam and a calendar Slam in consecutive years. This player completed that at the 2022 U.S. Open. Who is that player? Wait, say that again. I'm sorry. A player at this past U.S. Open mm-hmm. just completed, made just made history okay. by winning the Golden Slam last year. Okay. And the Calendar Slam this year. Who is that player? I mean, it's a, it's, if it's a wheelchair player, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> because we know you, we know you love we know you love the wheelchair game and that you're a huge fan of it. I mean, I agree. I'm I'm a huge I'm a fan of it. I'm not as big of a fan as you are of wheelchair tennis. It's, but um, while we're on the topic of wheelchair tennis, <laughs> wheelchair. I want to give a shout out to the U.S. Open because it's the first Grand Slam that's ever had a junior event for wheelchair, 18 and under wheelchair tournament at the U.S. Open. 
Um, Our but junior? can you give me, can you, but is it a real player? Is it, I mean, okay. I, okay. It's a, yeah, it's a fake, it's a fake <laughs> let me, player. Let me back up. It's a up. fake player. Up. What wheelchair, the fuck does wheel, that mean? Wheel, wheelchair players are very much real tennis players. So look, can I just, can you just, is, is it a, it a real player or not? Like, is it a wheelchair player or, a ten, or like a reg, like, cause if it's a wheelchair player, I just won't know. So like, I'm not going to guess. Cause I'm not, I don't know any wheelchair, unless it's Shinzu, whatever, Kaneda or whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so it's a wheelchair player. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, how am I supposed to know this? I'm not, I mean, I mean, no, no, I don't, there's no reason to, to be honest. There's no reason to know any wheelchair player at all. Okay. But, so my, but, but this person, it's a massive accomplishment. Go, golden slam <laughs> and then calendar slam. Um, well, I'll, I'll give it to you. This girl's name is Dede de Groot. Okay. De Groot. I'm guessing de, she's from the Netherlands. That's what I was going to guess too. I just put to Google it. Let's see. Dick Root. She is from the Netherlands. Yes, 25 years old. 25 years old with a calendar slam and a golden slam in consecutive years. Okay. Remar remarkable. Great. Amazing. Now, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually ready with a, uh, with a quote, if you're ready. A quote. Here we go. It's about our friend Carlos Alcaraz, who actually tweeted before the final a brain emoji, a heart emoji, and two eggs. And I was like, what does that even mean? He actually went on to explain that. This is a sidebar. He went on to explain that that tweet meant in Spanish, cabeza, head, corazón, heart, and cajones, balls. That's what his grandfather taught him when he was little about how, you act, how you're supposed to be on a tennis court is cabeza, corazón, cajones. Head, heart, and 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 cajones. Um, so the, fact that, the, the fact that this guy the fact that this guy tweeted that before the final, I was like, yeah, Kasparud has no chance. But um, okay, so here we go. Here's the quote. It's a very it's a one sentence quote, um, but it's a powerful one. Um, and I think I don't know. You can also give your thoughts on the quote when I say it. Yeah. The quotes: uh, Carlos Alcaraz has barely reached sixty percent of his true potential. Um, and the options for this answer are Juan Carlos Ferrero, Tim Henman, John McEnroe, or Mary Jo Fernandez. So first of all, your thoughts on the quote. 60%. He's world number one. He's won a Grand Slam. Say, say the quote, your thing cut out. Um, Carlos Alcaraz has barely reached 60% of his true potential. Oh, wow. Okay. And the options? Yes. Um, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, uh -huh. Tim Henman. John McEnroe, Mary Jo Fernandez. Oof. Okay, I don't think... Oh. I was going to say I don't think it's Juan Carlos because I don't think he'd gas him up that much, you know, after winning a Grand Slam, so I'll take him out. My thoughts on the quote... I'll go back to that real quick. My thoughts on the quote are that it's like it's like not a ridiculous thing to to say. Uh definitely I agree. definitely yeah. not. Uh it's it's very, you know, surprising that anyone would come out and say that, but it's not. You can if you you know, you can you can say he has a lot he's more to improve, I know, but but saying like 60% is like saying oh my god, he can almost just, you know. It just really, depends on what you mean by 60% because if this is 60% and it means one major a year and world number 1, then that means that the 
minimum 60% expectation is one major year moving forward, which brings him to 15, 16 grand slams. So that's why I thought it was, if you just think of it logically, what it means, you know, a hundred percent would mean at least two majors a year, maybe three. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, go ahead. Who do you think it was? Yeah. Don't think it's Tim Henman after some of the quotes we've heard him say, I'll just take him out because it's a, something I agree with. I'm going to say McEnroe and Mary Jo Fernandez, but I, I've never seen Mary Jo give like super like in-depth takes kind of takes like that. She kind of keeps it high level. Uh, so I'm going to say McEnroe. Incorrect. It's Juan Carlos Ferreira, which is an interesting quote from him. I mean, look, it's great. I know you're in some sort of a manic feeling happy about winning the tournament, but I would pump the brakes if I was him. I would pump the brakes if I were him. Why you're, you're, your player's in a great headspace. Why would you want anyone asking Carlos about this? Why do you want to go in the next tournament? If you know, I think he, there's chances Carlos will struggle. He's going to be the hunted now. So why why say that? It doesn't really matter ultimately. But if that's what he's saying to you know all the time, if this becomes a habit of comments, then I don't like it. He also said a similar thing is that he said the center Alca the center Alcaraz rivalry will be like the Nadal Djokovic rivalry for the next 10 years. So, <laughs> already they had a couple of good matches, these guys, but to say that it's going to be the Nadal Djokovic, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't love that from Juan Carlos. I think it's going to be the biggest rivalry in tennis. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think it's going to be like the Nadal or whoever, whatever he said, Nadal Djokovic. Yeah. JC needs to relax. <laughs> JC Ferrero needs to like, <laughs> chill out. <laughs> that guy, the freaking golden ticket, that guy. I mean, he was he was number one in the world himself, right? And won a Grand Slam. It's true. He won yeah. the French Open. And I'm sure he's a good coach. Won I mean, the Carl- French won the French Open the year Carlos was born. So fun fact. That's that is a fun fact. Um, uh, yeah. So should, that's it then. I think. Yeah. For that. Should, should, should we do um, the women's? Can I just can I just say one thing? Um, and just about, put just about put a Carl- bow on the Alcaraz thing. Sure. Okay, I, I just want to put a bow on the Carlos thing. We're going to move here uh, on to the women's in a second. Is that another comment that he made that caught my eye is that he sees himself as the next big three because when he was talking about his finals, he would essentially said, it was great to win the US Open and beat Casper, but what I want to do is beat one of the big three or all of the big three at some point in my career. So just an interesting comment to make that you're thinking about the big three after you won a tournament where they weren't even a factor. And he thinks of himself as wanting to officially beat one of them, you know, and, and, and get to that level. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's my, just the mindset thing, you know, my, my last point on the Casper. Yeah. Carlos match is the sportsmanship is just like, it's, a little, about it's, a, it's a little too much for me. It's a little, it's a little cringe. I'm not saying go out there and be and be some like dick asshole on the court or whatever the fuck, but just like, I don't know. It's just like you're not like you're not out there to make friends. Like I get it, you want to be fair, whatever. But it's look, look, just, if you just, if just you not have, the fire. If you have a shot where someone's at the net and you hit the ball to the net cord and it jumps up to their chest and they have no chance to get, it's purely luck. You know what? Apologize. That's fine. That was clearly a lucky shot. I've seen Casper Rude apologize on just routine forehand winners that might barely touch the tape or like a volley winner. That's an angle that he was trying to do, or maybe he wasn't. I don't know, but I don't understand the apologizing on the routine strokes. You know, it just, that doesn't make sense to me. 
Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Casper does that, right? I'm not the only one who sees that. Yeah, no, he'll, he'll be oh, he'll be apologizing. Like, what the heck? What is he apologizing for? It just doesn't make any sense. But let's let's move on to the Ega match. And then there's just a final point on that is that there was one point in the I forget exactly. It was a really important point in the match, and it was a double bounce situation where Casper got there. He hit an incredible lob, what looked like an incredible lob, and essentially immediately conceded the point to Carlos, even though it wasn't called. And I guess you know that's fine. I agree with that. Ultimately conceding the point. But the, on the replay, it didn't even look that clear. It the, didn't look no, that clear. That, it was yeah. it, it was it was on the replay. It was clear that it was a double bounce when I saw the replay. But if I was if I was Casper, I would have like thought maybe I got there. You know what I mean? I would have wanted I would have wanted to watch the replay and just make sure it was a double or whatever. It was minuscule. It was very very close. It was not obvious. Do you think all I'm saying is do you think when Daniil Medvedev and Stefano Tsitsipas are playing each other? And the umpire misses that call. You think either of those guys are giving the point to their opponent? Look, Vid, if I'm playing you in the finals of whatever tournament we're playing, I don't know how old we are. Maybe we're you know seven years old playing the three-five final, and the chair umpire gives me that point. I'm taking it. I'm sorry. I'm taking it. I'm trying. I'm out here trying to win. I'm not trying to you know be the number one sportsman in the world. But I, I agree morally that is actually the right thing to do is give the point in that situation. But mm, I don't know. I do like the fire. I do like the fight. But this isn't a game of morals. This is a game of Grand Slam titles. So that's that's where you get tripped up. I'm not saying cheat. I'm saying take what is given to you. You have to let some of these rivalries develop, right? I think Carlos is someone who could potentially get into a rivalry with someone. It's all great and nice now, but you know how these things work, you know? Uh, the story is still yet to be written. As, um, as yeah, say. no, I agree. I'm looking forward to the next time Casper Rude plays Holger Rune. Right. Uh, Holger the, Rune against, yeah. Exactly. Because Casper yelled in his face, allegedly yelled in his face in the locker room. So we gotta get to the we gotta get to the bottom of that somehow. We have all this inside <laughs> info about tennis, but we've never heard about that. Um, okay, now let's talk about Ega Women's Final. Uh, where do we want to start? Overall thoughts. You want to go first? No, I mean I think there's so many parallels to Carlos. Like she went on her huge streak before the French Open. Well, I forget how much was it 28 or 30 something? 36, I thought. 30, 36 streak. Um, you know, once she won the French Open, her streak ended. People almost just forgot, just totally forgot about the streak. She had a tough a couple of tough uh, you know, matches coming into the tournament and wasn't playing her best, but uh I think that ever since the French open title and she hasn't felt like she's gotten the respect that she deserves. She's been out there to prove something to everyone. It's just, she always plays the fuck you attitude, but this, 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 this tournament was even more. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I kind of disagree with you when I say it was the same. It's not really the same for them in this, maybe in some senses, but in the sense that Carlos has had the hype and the talk about him for, and he should rightfully. So he should have that kind of buzz around him for the last year. I guess you could say Iga has, Won a grand slam when she was what nineteen years old. Has this incredible season, a, argu- arguably a better season. Actually, not arguably, definitely a better season than Carlos. If we're comparing the two. Oh, for sure, uh, way better. Not, than Carlos. Not two even, grand slams. I mean, two yeah, grand slams. it's not. It's three, not even. It's yeah. not even close, right? Yeah. And and she still, like, it seems like you know your mid tier, twenty twentieth, twenty first ranked WTA yeah. player. So I don't know why she's not being categorized as uh, undoubtedly the best women's tennis player on the planet right now because also she did not play I think her she best. is now. I think she is now. 
Okay, well, I mean, let's just and, and also that, the, what I was saying, explicit. what I was saying when I was saying comparing them is that they were both playing their best tennis when it was leading up to the French Open. Amazing in those warm up tournaments, they were both odds on favorites going into the French Open, and then they had like a significant dip after that, losing. They both they both took you know didn't play any warm up tournaments for Wimbledon, lost early in Wimbledon, and then had like a very mediocre U.S. Open swing. And I remember we were talking about it before the tournament. Me and you, let's be honest, we didn't think Iga should be the number one favorite, even though she was coming into the U.S. Open. Just because of her, it's, it's always about the mindset. Carlos's mindset, I loved coming to the U.S. Open with how he was kind of embracing everything. Iga's, I didn't necessarily like. Talking about the balls, how she felt she was being disrespected, and clearly she just used it as fire, like a, like a Novak Djokovic. Not, didn't, didn't, didn't deter her, her at all, you know? Yeah, I mean, I had her losing, and I think it was a. I thought she was going to lose third or fourth round. I can't remember who she was going to play, but I certainly didn't think that she was going to win the tournament. I didn't even think she would go deep. Carlos, on the other hand, I had a feeling that he could, even though his form wasn't the best coming into the tournament, I felt that he could come in and do something big because the spotlight was on Iga, even though she wasn't doing that well, just because of the whole balls controversy and all all of that nonsense. So because of that, because the spotlight was on her, I thought in, here, here, in a negative yeah. way, and she had wasn't playing well leading up. I thought I thought it would affect her negatively, here, but she really she pulled a joker. Here's no how you know that Iga is legitimate number one is that every single match she played, it was like against Pagula, whether it was against Lauren Davis. The commentators kept saying Iga's so out of it. She's playing so badly. She can't do anything. And it's like, okay, you're playing badly and you're beating the number eight player in the world in straight sets. Okay. If you're, if you're doing that at your worst, then, and you're able to fight through not playing your best, then that's clear. You know, that's number one, that's number one behavior right there is, is being able to overcome not play. I mean, how many players would you say in either of the game cannot be playing their best and win a major? Like even in the history, like I would say Serena is definitely one of them. Federer, Djokovic, the big three. But it's very rare to have a player that can be at 90 percent and then and then still win. You know, you have to be at the top of your game. Um, but, but, but yeah, th- th- this is this is by far, in my opinion, the most impressive of her slams in terms of the individual performance. And the most impressive of any of the other female slam winners this year was this was her winning this U.S. Open. Yeah, let's now let's talk about the actual match now or ons because we've talked about Iga a lot. Um, the match itself, I think. Well, first I will say about ons. I think that we were talking about Carlos getting the monkey off his back. I think that monkey jumped off his back. I think think it jumped right onto Anz Jabor's back. Mm-hmm. Losing two Grand Slam finals in a row, you know, you don't know when you're going to get this opportunity again. Yep. Yeah, she was playing. She had a great tournament at Wimbledon here, but you know, these are things that she's going to be thinking about when she's in any major now moving forward, especially deep in the semifinals, finals, even even quarterfinals. So. I think it'll be interesting to see how she does. She does uh, I honestly thought, just similar to how I thought about Casper, that he learned from his experience in the last Grand Slam final, his first one. I thought that Ons, all the hype at Wimbledon was just a little too much, I think. And I thought that the reason for her whole being extremely anxious at Wimbledon, throwing her racket, looking totally out of character, I thought that was a one-off thing. And I really, I really, I didn't necessarily expect her to win, but I expected her to not come out in the first set looking like a shell of herself, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's a pattern at this point where it looks like the pressure is just getting to her, you know, 
even when she was playing well in the second set, she still had those kind of like fidgety, jumpy, negative emotions uh, on the court. Yeah, no, definitely all mental for her. It was also, she was not doing anything. She looked so tight. And when she got tight, the ball was landing so short in the court. And even when you have Iga playing at her, maybe her not her best level, then she's going to, you know, dominate when you're giving her short balls and just making it essentially easy for her to beat you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought the second set, that's not true though. She had, she gained the momentum. She started fighting back and gained the momentum back, but just wasn't able to, her, her whole body language didn't seem like she believed even when she was coming back, which I think was the problem. I think her tennis kind of accelerated to that, but these women's finals to me seem like they just go really fast. And I, I know that it was the first set went by extremely fast, but yeah, I, I just think that I personally would love to see a three out of five from the women's with a 10 point tiebreaker in the, in the fifth, uh, instead of the fifth, just for the final, just for the final, because it looked like she was turning her game around a little bit. And like she came in nervous, lost the first set. And at that point it's basically over. Yeah. But the, it's hard to ask for that because the women it's not, it's first, we don't know what's going to happen. Like whether they know how to fi- play five set matches, I guess they could learn uh, how to play the five setters also physically. Like what's that going to mean for them? I know it's only the last match of the tournament, but if they get to a fifth set tie break, like is the level going to go down? Maybe they should do some sort of test run on it to see what happens. But yeah, and I don't the, know. The, the I don't problem, know about that. The problem with Anz's game is specifically in this matchup too, is her game is a lot of predicated around moving the other girl around the court, hitting angles, stuff like that. And that's where Iga excels is on the run, on the move. And if you're a female player, you're not used to playing someone who's so fast getting to everything. And when Iga's just running around the court, like Usain Bolt, making every single shot, it, it, it that frustration festers and builds even more every single point, you know? So that that's why that's why it's so hard to play Iga and her strength of, you know, hitting angles and crafting the ball around the court was totally neutralized when you're playing Iga. Yeah. Another, another point on, on her speed is and any level of tennis, when you're playing someone that's so fast, you're so frustrated, start, you're, you're frustrated. And then you're going to start going closer to the lines. You're going to feel like you're going to have to do more with the ball and you're going to start missing. And that's exactly what happened to her. She didn't change her game up really that much. I think, yeah, you said she was going to come back. Uh, she had a few games where she looked good, but that really doesn't mean anything in the in the grand scheme of things. She couldn't maintain that level. And another point on the fact that it is two out of three sets, it it's it's kind of more interesting because, you know, the beginning of the match is so much more important in the women's than the men's. Like, if someone loses the first set in the men's match, like, you're not really batting an eye um, no. at, the, at the potential outcome of the match. Whereas women's like first set goes so lopsided to ego. You're like, this is likely over. And then it's really a battle in that second set, which feels like a, feels like a fourth set, you know, it's not, but it, it just, it just has that feeling to it. And it's kind of like, you know, in college and doubles, you know, you play a set, you're playing a short set. So the beginning really matters. Yeah, but she's going to have to do something. I don't, I don't know what. I mean, I'm not sure what you would do if you were her, you know, in this situation. Is it, is it hiring a mental coach? Is it changing up your 
your pre-match routine? Is it maybe playing closer, but you know, play, getting out, out on the practice court closer before you go to a match? But I mean, what are you, I mean, I don't know what your strategies are when you're started to struggling, you know, opening. Sometimes maybe it's visualizing how the first few games are going to go and just visualizing yourself in that environment. But she has to do something because at this point, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to have the clutch gene, as, as you say, or the big, she's not a big PTP or not a big match player. Uh, I think it's fair to describe her like that. I think should I put her in the same category as like, uh, you know, Sakari or, you know, we've seen with Sabalenka sometimes too, where she gets, well, who, yeah. who, I'll ask you, who is a, who's a big match player? What woman is a big match player besides, besides, besides Ika? That's honestly a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would say, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's hard to say. I was going to say Coco Goff just because of, how well how much she's her game has yeah. progressed this year and how how she's been winning you know third sets and third set tie breaks and stuff like that but she also kind of collapsed against Iga in the French Open final so um yeah it's hard to I I would say it's it is hard to say that um yeah I don't know I don't I don't I, I can't I can't say anyone is a is a primetime player I think Bedosa when she's playing well is pretty good under pressure uh, actually but no, I, I, I can't. And that's maybe why Iga is going to just continue to dominate. Maybe that's the reason. I mean, who she needs a rival, right? We talked about Carlos having a rival. It's Yannick. Yannick's probably going to be his rival. Some of the other guys. But who is who is Iga's number one rival? Like, who do you see as a second player in the WCA right now? Because it's just kind of a hodgepodge of different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know who it is. I, I don't think we can nail that down. I think there's like a little this little group chasing after her and they'll take, you know, they'll take a shot at her, but they, they're always going to miss. They seemingly will always miss. So I, I, there's literally no one, no one that comes to mind that who is even, who's ranked second in the world right now. Um, Ons is ranked second. Okay. okay. Uh, so, so third? it's third is Annette, Paula Bedosa, Jesse Pagula, who's just literally at another I, level below her ego. It's not even I, close. Uh, like at least with Ons and these guys, you can say maybe they're at the same level. Yeah. No. I'd like to think that Pagula would not be mentally affected if she was kind of in a Grand Slam final. Her, ga- uh, her like, game like, is on, just like, not enough. Like Ons. Yeah. Like Ons was. And then those other girls, like, they're not even showing up these days. No, they're not so, showing up. So I, I, the problem with Pagula is she doesn't have any weapons. Like, her movement isn't a weapon. Her serve isn't a weapon. Neither ground stroke is a weapon. She's just a very solid player, which. Is great, and it, she could end up winning a major, but it's never going to be on her terms, you know. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the rankings. I think Simona Halep is probably maybe the I would put them as the number one contender, as number nine um, to beat her, just because she's also a good mover. But I, I'm just looking down the rankings. Like Muguruza is 12th in the world. I, I, that's crazy to me. It's, I haven't. Seen all Mur- she does is lose. You know, it's like every time I look at the she, score, she's she, losing. She probably has some big tournaments that were at the beginning of the year that she's yeah. going to defend or at the end of this year. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Pliskova looked pretty good at the U S open to be honest. Pliskova looked very good. Like I, that's why I mentioned her before when we were talking about kind of people going under the radar, she yeah. definitely went under the radar and, and as looked, looked like she was, you know, solid, not, not good. I would say, but, um, she had some ups and downs that match, but at the end, she looked pretty, pretty. Yeah, the, I mean, it's wide open in the women's. If one of these girls can make a jump, you know, Amanda Animasova, Coco Goff, Elena Rabakina, if one of them can make a jump <clears> and they can be the contender to Iga, I think Elena Rabakina actually could be 
someone who could beat Iga just because of how big her strokes are, or even Amanda Animasova, how big their strokes are. And I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's possible, but but it Iga's the odds on favorite to win the most grand slams last year for sure. It's it's just kind of odd because whenever there's a woman that wins a grand slam, I'm always like <clears throat> I'm always like, who are they gonna lose to? And I, I see their game as being so good. Right. Uh, like, for example, Emma, after she won the US Open, I was like, her game's amazing. Like, who is she going to lose to? She loses. She still loses. She loses all the time. But I'm, I'm always like, when she goes on the court, I'm expecting her to win. It's the same with Iga and it's the same with Rubakina. So, you know, right. It's just, it's just interesting. It's totally not correct what I'm saying, but I don't know why just winning a major gives. Mm-hmm people the perception that you are never going to lose i i mean there still is a lack of hype around Iga. i mean everyone agrees collectively that she's number one and that she's the one to beat but novak didn't have his first slam you know until he was 21 or 22 she's already got three slams you know naomi osaka has four grand slams but is much older so i i put i put Iga ahead of naomi right now the hype that naomi gets is you know out outweighs her actual talent on the court i guess maybe naomi osaka honestly who knows if she can ever get back to playing tennis but yeah i forgot about her honestly Uh, honestly yeah she she lost to danielle collins and then danielle collins i think it was fourth round can't remember who she was playing let me she lost to sabalenka Uh, yeah well the round before that who did she play um, Carol, no, um, Cornet. Cornet. Yeah, Cornet. Cornet. I, I watched her play that match. Uh, like I went to this, I went to watch it live, and I was literally convinced that she was going to win the tournament. That's how good she was playing. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Danielle Collins is good. I think Danielle Collins is is up there. Um, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the rest of the season. But um, it's wide open. It's wide yeah. open. It's wide open. The WTA. Love love the WTA. I fucking love it. We should go to that S- uh, San Diego 500, though. I mean, if you're if you're available that week, I'm available. I will be. I'm going to Europe tomorrow. The, yeah, I'm going to Saudi Arabia in October, and then I'll come to California great. and check it out. That's great. I think I think that maybe there we should actually promote the pod at that point because we'll be we'll be, we'll be at Where? the San Diego event. Oh yeah, we 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 we've done. We've done no. We're we're refining the product. That's why we haven't that's, done any. Marketing. I think we both have the same mindset on that. Yeah. <clears throat> that's why. That's why, uh, guys. If you're you know if you're not seeing the reason you're not seeing our, our our name, you know, on the billboards, you know, everywhere you go in the tennis yeah. world, that's just because we're just trying to uh, refine and iterate on the product before we kind of really really push it out to a mass audience. So so shout out to everyone listening because you're you know nice niche listener. Appreciate yeah. appreciate the listens. Yeah. Let's not forget Coco Goff is only 18 still. So is that correlated with what I just said or is that just a thought? No, no, just a random just a just a thought. Just a thought. Okay. Just a thought. A good thought to keep in mind. Coco Goff is 18 years old. Amanda Anisimova is 21 years old. Amanda Anisimova 21. Novak uh, Djokovic is 36 years old. Um Shelby Rogers is 29. Kaya Kanepi is 37 years old. <laughs> I know mean, she's crazy. No, she's not. Kaya Kanepi is 32 in the world and she's 37 years old. I think that needs to be an impromptu honorable mention just for that. <laughs> I, I mean, that's like being an average tour player for your entire career. And at 37, you're still in the top 35. I mean, that's crazy. How? How does she do it? 
I don't know. Serena should talk to her. We might have to travel to Estonia for the Estonia 250. Get Kanepi on the pod. Maybe she can talk to Annette, help her out, mentor her a little bit. I don't know. And get the Estonia tennis back up and running like it should be. What is it with Estonia? How do they have? They have two top 50 players. What the hell's in Estonia? They're cooking something up over there. Well, they have confidence because their tournament director compared their uh, tournament to a Grand Slam. So, yes. Yeah, the Tallinn that's... Slam. Tallinn. Tallinn Open. When is okay. that? I think that's it. We're done. Yeah, honorable mentions. I don't have any. Okay, I have two. Well, if I can find my phone. But yes, the one is Eugenie Bouchard. Let's be honest. We thought she was done with tennis. We thought she was going to be an Instagram model, make her money off of just having tons of Instagram followers and... um you know, being someone that's marketable in a lot of different ways, but Mark, marketable. But, we we these days we use we use the word marketable synonymously with being attractive. She's 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 she's, mar- market- she's marketable, mate. She's she's, she's marketable. She's mar- she's marketable. That's for sure. And but she's even more marketable because she's just made the quarterfinals of a WTA 250, winning the first two rounds. Um, so shout out to Jeannie. I mean, that's very impressive. Second tournament back, you know, to win two matches for anyone. It's- 